Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities need it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal, where we're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders you hear on this podcast. In this episode, I spoke with Manny Diaz, former two-term mayor of Miami and the newly elected chair of the Florida Democratic Party. We talked about what it will take for Democrats to win Florida, including how best to reach Hispanic voters in his state, as well as redistricting and the recent voter suppression legislation signed by the governor. We also talked about his personal journey into public service, escaping Castro's Cuba with his mother when he was only six, to becoming mayor and helping transform his city into the thriving metropolis and American icon that Miami is today. So Manny Diaz, welcome to an honorable profession. Thank you. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to see you. Good to see you. I just, we've got so much to talk about. I just want to dive straight in. I just read a recent profile of you and, and in, in that they referred to being party chair as the least desirable or most thankless job in politics, I think. So I just want to start by uh, with you becoming new Florida party chair in January. Why, why did you want to be, be party chair? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, you know, I'm the kind of person all my life that when I've seen something that needs to be fixed, something that's wrong, something that's broken. I have a hard time not stepping up. I, I, I don't know why I got that gene, but, but I got it. You know, another, another example I would give you is, um, th- despite the fact that I had been involved in politics since I was in high school, I had always sworn that I would never run for office. I told, I told my friends that if I ever even had a conversation contemplating the idea of running for office, that they they, they had a authority to put me out of my misery immediately. <laughs> and so despite all of my involvement, uh, you know, people were always uh, thinking that, you know, all of this was, was, was being done in order to build a, a resume to run for office. And I kept telling everybody, no, that's not, not, not why I'm doing it. And I don't care to run for office. And so I, I got, I got away with that until 2000. And then in, in 2000, I, you know, the, the city had, had gotten to such a, a bad state. I mean, we were, I, I couldn't travel and, and, and not chat with somebody on an airplane. And when I told them I was from Miami, they, they said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, the reputation that we had nationally and internationally was terrible. A couple of things happened in 2000 as well. The first was that uh, my father passed away. And, you know, when we talk about my personal life, you'll, you'll learn that, you know, I, I was the classic immigrant story, hardworking man, worked two, three jobs. So, so I had a shot at the American dream and, 
and so many like him. I mean, so many in this area that have a similar story. And so I just woke up one day and said, my God, you know, this, this can't be their legacy. They've worked too hard have their children live, live the American dream. And that's not the legacy that I, that I want for, for my dad and for all the others like him. And so I've got to do something about it. And, I, you know, I looked around and I said, how do I fix this? And I said, well, you got to be on the inside. And Miami is the brand name here. To many of you from, from up north, you know, anything south of Orlando is, is Miami. And, and Miami slash Cuban Americans defines this area and, and who we are. And, and, uh, and so I, I have to run for office and why don't I run for mayor? Because the mayor is, has the bully pulpit. I mean, this was not a, you know, I'll run for city commission first and serve a term or two and then run for mayor and then run for something else. Remember, I didn't want to do this in the first place. So I went right to where I felt a change could happen. And, I ran, I ran against uh, every mayor from 1973 to 2001, an incumbent city commissioner, former city manager, former city attorney. Uh, there were, I think, nine or 10 of us in the race. So if, if you were thinking about the smart political move to make, that was not it. <laughs> it checked all the boxes for why not to do it. But, you know, I said, this, this is what I want. And I'm committed to doing it. And so I felt that pit in my stomach. And, and decided to do it and, and won. And so now going to the party, I, I kind of had that, you know, I, I have been feeling a bit of anxiety uh, leading up to, you know, November 2020. But November 2020 sort of put the nail in the coffin. And this also wasn't the Democratic Party that I grew up in. You know, something was amiss. And, uh, and so I've got to fix it. Same thing. And how do I fix it? Well, I guess I should be chair of the Florida Democratic Party. So how do you become chair of the Florida Democratic Party? I didn't even know. I didn't even know if I qualified. And, and until, until, um, until a few months earlier, I, I wouldn't qualify because you had to be inside the party structure in order to have the qualifications to be able to run for the top, top spot. You couldn't just like walk off the street and say, I'm running for this. But they had amended the bylaws to, to allow a member of the DNC Finance Committee to qualify. And so, you know, I said, okay, fine. Uh, I called up there and I said, I want to be on the finance committee. They said, write a check. So I wrote a check <laughs> and, and I qualified. And that's it. I mean, that's yeah. and So I, I had never been involved institutionally in the party. I had not been an active participant in Florida Democratic Party matters or even local structural, uh, local executive committees of the party or, or anything like that. I Like most people, I had worked primarily with candidates and and causes and, you know, and and things, but but never within the structure. Yeah, yeah. So I was I was a real outsider, and I, yeah. that's why that's why I decided to run. I I love it, and I mean, you are you know coming into this uh, after coming off of twenty 2020 twenty into twenty twenty two, you've got a lot going on there in Florida. You got your election for governor, other statewide officers, the Marco Rubio Senate seat, legislative seats, and I, I know you ran on a platform for party chair uniting Democrats across the state. I think you've got ideas like doing a 67 county strategy, as well as opening a central Florida office, which hasn't existed before. So, you know, you talked about 2020 being a catalyst for what what prompted you to, to get into the, to the race for the chair. You know, what do you think it's going to take to turn things around for Democrats in Florida? 
Well, it's got to take a number of things. It's never, you know, it's never just one thing. If it was, if it was a mistake that we made in, you know, October or September of 2020, then any idiot could, could assume this position and, and fix that problem. Uh, this has been a problem that's been brewing for a very, very long time. And now that you're, you know, even when I ran for mayor, like I said, I've been involved in politics all my life, but I had never been in the belly of the beast. And so the same thing is true here. I mean, I, I, I obviously knew in my gut that there were problems, but I didn't know the extent of the problems. And and so, yes, the, and I'll tell you why that, that strategy is so important, because we haven't, we haven't built, to me, it's basic. I mean, I've, it's, 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 I've been involved not just in politics, but in business all my life. And, and I've been involved in, in a number of turnaround situations, including in the city, but also in the private sector. And one thing that you know is that you have to build, in order to turn things around, you have to build a solid foundation of an organization that is a well-oiled machine, which is not what the party is, by far. Uh, I, I, I guess the analogy I would make is that this is a... Um, this is like a carnival, you know, it comes into town and they put up all the tent and, the, you know, the cotton candy and everything else and they ramp up. And then when the carnival's over, they just shut down and go home till next year. And so, for example, you have in the last uh, in the last decade, um, the Democratic registration has increased by 700,000. Republican registration has increased by 1.2 million. And the MPAs have increased by 1.6 million, the no party affiliates. So in, in, 19, in 2012, uh, the last time that Obama, when Obama's re-election, and he won Florida, we had close to a 600,000 vote margin in registration over the Republicans. And that went down to 100,000 by 2020. And so, you know, you can point to a lot of issues, uh, point to COVID, you can point to a whole number of things. But if you don't have the numbers to begin with, it's harder. There's no margin of error. So that, that sort of stares you in the, in, in the face. The other thing that you, that you realize is that in the odd years, uh, when I talk about a sustainable organization year-round, in the odd years, we lose, lost, uh, an average of almost 100,000 votes per year. So when everybody gears up, to do a voter registration drive in the election year, you are already starting with a deficit of 100,000. So if you registered 200, you really only gained 100 because you lost 100 the year before. So, I mean, those are the kinds of things that that tell you that over time, you, you keep making those mistakes and it's gonna catch up with you. And it caught up with us. Now, the flip side, the, the, good, the good news is that since 1992, the margin of victory in presidential elections in Florida has been less than 200,000. You know, we lost, a, we lost a U.S. Senate incumbent in 2018 by 10,000 votes. A governor's race, we lost by 30,000 votes. You know, Rick Scott, our senator, who won the, uh, that Senate election, got elected governor twice by no more than 1%. So this has traditionally been, you know, the, people describe it, you know, you're, you're the 1% state. Because all elections are very close. Well, you know, it, it just goes to show that had we done a little more registration, had we done a little more voter engagement, uh, a better get out the vote <coughs> operation, you know, 10,000, 30,000 votes. I mean, my God, that's, that could be one building in Miami. You yeah, know, almost, yeah. Right? 
So yeah, those are amazing numbers given how big Florida is. That every that those races are that close. I don't, I'm not sure everyone really understands that. It is uh, those are razor yeah. thin. Yeah. Yeah, and so yeah. you know, have have we made a lot of mistakes? Yes, but is it reversible? Absolutely. I mean, look look at those results. And by the way, here's another thing. Every two years in in, uh, in general state elections, we have referendums, you know, ballot initiatives. In 2020, while Trump was winning the state, we also passed a minimum wage law hmm. in Florida. Hmm. In 2018, we passed voter uh, felon voter reg- restoration. In 2016, we passed uh, medical marijuana. In 14, we passed a sweeping um, land and water conservation environmental initiative. In 12, we passed, uh, you know, we fought back, actually, uh, an attack on on reproductive rights and and, and women's rights. Uh, In 10, we passed the Fair Districts Amendment, which I know you want to talk about redistricting, which has the toughest standards, well, at least at the time that we passed it. I actually chaired that effort in in 10, the toughest uh, standards in, in the country. And yeah, and they can try to, they could try to mess with it, and they will, for sure. But there are standards that have to be met. And if they don't comply with those standards, the courts will throw it out. We litigated after passage in 10. We litigated for three or four years, I forget, because they drew districts that were gerrymandered and the courts threw them out and they had to go back and start over again. Yeah. So, yeah. so, so in other words, we're passing all these, you know, typically Democratic Party issues that the Republicans fought tooth and nail against us on all of those. Yeah. Right? On each and every yeah. single one of them. But yet, but yet they voted for Trump. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, that's an interesting dichotomy. I mean, you, you're talking about this being passed, obviously, but through referendum or initiative, not, and then, you know, but the, the things that are coming out of your legislature or the vote for Trump seem incongruous with some of those uh, statewide initiatives. So that's, you know, what do you make of that kind of just, you know, that, that, that difference there? And, and by the way, to pass these referendums requires sixty percent, because the Republicans the Republicans did that. They made it a little harder, so that all these you know liberal issues that they don't care for would, would be tougher to pass. In fact, this last session, they added another obstacle to it by by saying that there were they established uh, limits on contributions for for these referendum issues because we don't want these you know rich liberals coming in from from out of town. And helping fund these, you know, crazy radical ideas like minimum wage. <laughs> you know? Yeah, right, right. So you know, so the, what do I what do I think about that? I think that's the, that's the party's fault because it's obvious that people believe in those issues that are our issues. Mm-hmm. So if there are issues and they believe in those issues, why aren't they voting for us? Whose fault is that? I don't blame the Republicans for that. That's that's our fault because we haven't been able to make that community that that connection and communicate to those people that, Hey, we're the party that's fighting obviously for the issues you care about. And that hasn't been done. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to ask you one other political question because I think it's one of the main storylines that came out nationally about the 2020 election in Florida uh, at the presidential level, which was the Hispanic vote. And in particular, I think a surprise from some people that, that some Hispanics, you know, such a large percentage, particularly of Cuban Americans, uh, voted for Trump. You're Cuban American yourself. What what is your what, what do you tell people that, that about the Hispanic vote in Florida generally or nationally that they should understand or that you know does that surprise you or not surprise you and why or why not? It doesn't. Well, 
it doesn't surprise me. It disappoints me. It doesn't surprise me because I have been, I have personally been fighting that fight for over 40 years. And what is that fight? It's uh, you are ignoring us. You are taking us for granted. You don't understand this. You think we're some sort of monolithic community. None of your, your, your consultants that you send down here speak Spanish. You know, no offense to anybody from Iowa, but, you know, it's like, hey, you know, and, and then not only, and, but the worst part, of course, is that they come here, they don't speak our language, they don't understand the culture, but yet they tell us what to do. And it's like, you know, listen, I've lived here since I was a kid. I mean, I know this community. I know the messaging that works. I know what we have to do, blah, 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 blah. And it's like, no, this is what you have to do. It's like, okay, fine. And, and so, you know, so number one, it's just a total disregard and lack of, I guess the term is, you know, cultural competence mm -hmm. to deal with what they, you know, with what they have to deal with. Generally, the, the campaign, you know, they, they, the Republicans, I mean, they started this back in 1968 with Richard Nixon, when 1968 happened to coincide with sort of the first wave of us that had arrived in the early 60s the time frame for converting to citizenship. And so they were very smart to sort of target on this new large group of people that had arrived in America who were about to become citizens to become Republicans. And so we fought that initially. And then with Watergate, you know, the tide turned and there was, you know, strong support for Democrats and voting for Carter then and blah, blah, blah. And then that didn't work. And then Reagan came in and did the same thing, you know, worked the community. And, you know, turned it back around and then sort of Clinton turned it back the other way. And then with Bush and terrorism, it went back the other way. It's a very volatile hmm. community, you know, yeah, because yeah. it doesn't have that long term connection. But then Obama turned it back around the other way. And and so, you know, it, it's you, you have to know and understand in your gut and in your heart why that volatility exists. And so there's no one size fits all. And, and if you don't understand that, you will lose the community. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so it's, it gives me a little bit of hope in what you're saying that it's uh, that, 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 that can be turned around again with the right kind of uh, approach and the right kind of sensitivity and, and messaging. So that, that gives me a little hope. You, you mentioned um, redistricting. I, I do want to talk about that for a minute. Um, I think a lot of people in Florida thought you might end up with two congressional seats and you ended up with one additional. Many people have talked about that being a result of potentially an undercount in the census, uh, both oh, because of COVID and also the citizenship question fight, uh, whether that should be on there. So, yeah, I guess my two questions is, is that right? Is that your sense of, of what happened? And Absolutely. also, what do you, you know, how does that impact your thinking as, as party chair about your strategy with the redistricting? Well, it, it's absolutely, by the way, you know, thank you, Donald Trump, again, for, you know, the whole mess around the census. The, the um, by the way, I went through it. I remember I got elected in 01. So, my election coincided with the release of the census data. Right. And through my work as, as mayor and with the conference of mayors, I started, I started, we, we were, we automatically sued the census every year. You know, when they come out with their American survey, I forgot what it's called. Yeah. Right. Right. Updates, yeah. est estimates, because we knew they were underestimating. I mean, th there were like, 
a gazillion buildings. I mean, in my eight years, by the way, 135 high-rise buildings were built in the city. And yet the population numbers weren't fluctuating. It's like, wait, you know, mm. I know I didn't do very well in math when I was in high school, but I think I can add up that something's happening here. And so, you know, we, we were suing every year. And, and even and then I left office and then the 2010 census, I still think undercounted. In fact, I know they undercounted. We did everything we could, including, by the way, reaching out to all these all these buildings that were going up. We were actually working with the management of, of all of these high-rise buildings so that they would get access, they would have access, easy access into, into the buildings. But I circled back with a lot of those managers and they said they, they never came. Hmm. So, hmm. you know, it's yeah. the course, yeah. course of least resistance. It's amazing to me that in a country as technologically advanced as ours, that we can't figure this out. Yeah, yeah. Well, we still, we, we still yeah. have, you know, we still have the guy with the clipboard <laughs> knocking on a door trying to figure out who lives in a, you know, in a particular place. Right. So absolutely. And then, and then this year, I mean, this, this past year, I mean, that was, I mean, that was all politics. You know, that was a hundred percent all politics it had nothing to do with, you know, the original intent of why do a census and, and yes, it did hurt us. And yes, we should have had two congressional districts and now we're only going to have one. And, and by all indications, the experts are telling me that it's more than likely to be in central Florida, mm. not in central Florida. Mm. Districting, look, they're going to, the, the census has been delayed. I mean, there are still, I mean, they, they released sort of general numbers, but nothing specific. And that's not going to happen until uh, by last count, uh, end of September. Uh, so it's obviously delayed. And then, you know, you need to start doing the mapping and blah, blah, blah. And, and then next year's session is at the beginning of the year, January and February, I think. So, you know, it's, it's the, 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 there's a committee formed, but committee members have not been named. So if I were, if I, if I had to guess today, is they're going to wait till the last minute and then try to ram it through hmm. Hmm. and then have us, you know, get our hair on fire and start fi filing lawsuits and, and then, you know, litigate this thing for the next bunch of years. And you mentioned the initiative that it passed about fair districts. So in the litigation, I mean, are you concerned that that's going to impact elections next year that, that we're not going to be able to get them done? Or I mean, what, what is your, what's, how does that play out eventually? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I am. And, and you may, you know, you may have to go with whatever they do until it gets reversed. And, and, you know, it's just, it, it's messy and it, it doesn't need to be, it shouldn't be you know, our, our motto for the campaign was that, you know, voters, voters should be the one selecting their, their representatives, not the other way around. And that's in essence what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's a shame because it's, it's anti-democratic. Yeah. Well, while we're on, while we're on that subject, let's uh, talk about another anti-democratic thing going on in Florida, <laughs> which we're all been watching nationally, which is your voter suppression bill that passed the legislature and was signed by the governor recently. I mean, I saw you do a statement on it. Uh, you know, this, it mirrors what's happening around the country, certainly. But what's so interesting to me about Florida, one thing that's interesting is, you know, that so many of your officials were touting how successful the election process was in Florida before they then turned around and decided they needed to solve all these, in quote, air quoting here, problems. Um, fraud, 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 fraud. Rampant, rampant fraud. Rampant fraud that wasn't existing when we first finished the election. So what, yeah, what is your take on the, the impact of this? And, uh, you know, it's, it's just devastating to watch what's happening around the country. 
it really is. And, and I'm praying to God that they pass something federally so that we, you know, we're all subject to the same thing and different states don't have different rules. You know, we fought hard. The bill looked much, much worse when it first came out. And, and we did water it down. We're not as bad as some of what we've seen in Texas or Georgia or other places. But it's, it's like, you know, choosing the least bad, you know, the least unconstitutional. Some people are actually friends of mine argue that we should have just let the, the worst of it pass so that we have a better chance of reversing it in court. The problem, by the way, is we, for fair districts and, 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 and redistricting and, and, and this bill, and other, other things, because there's like four or five lawsuits going on right now, is the fact that the uh, the Supreme Court of Florida, the makeup is very different than it was in the early part of the last decade when we were litigating all these issues. Hmm. It's, it's now, you know, a Republican-dominated... In fact, the person that wrote the minority opinion, uh, the dissenting opinion in the redistricting case, uh, is now the Chief Justice of our Supreme Court. So it's uh, scary. And then, you know, of course, taking it up to the, to the Supremes in D.C. is not great either. And the 11th Circuit, which is our appellate circuit, is not great either. So we, you know, it's, it's a tough fight. Yeah. We'll, hopefully we'll end up in the right place. But, I mean, it's, uh, they've made it very, very difficult strategically. It's all, it's all a plan. Yeah. And your, your, your hope is really that the federal HR1, that we have to do something federally to standardize this uh, as opposed to fight this out in, in every state. Is that right? Yeah, I got, I got to tell you that if I were in Congress right now, that would be my number one priority because, you know, if we, if we can't protect our democracy, then, you know, I mean, yeah, infrastructure and all those other things are great, but you know, <laughs> let's, let's protect the democracy first. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. Well, again, great segue on infrastructure. I, I, I think, you know, as you, as a former mayor, you know, we do have some good news finally coming out of Washington, besides uh, what we were just talking about in terms of having a new administration. Uh, I know how close you are to President Biden, and uh, and they've already passed the American Rescue Plan, uh, which is going to provide really significant funding for so many issues to, that we're dealing with as we're coming out of the pandemic and trying to build a, a better America post-COVID. We have hopes that we can do something even more with the American uh, jobs plan, the American Families Plan. So um, both with your hat on as a former mayor and your and your party hat on, what's the feeling about this in Florida? Or do you feel like people understand the significance of this? Are you hopeful that we're going to make some real transformational change? Why is this important? Well, I think I think it is, by the way, and and the numbers bear it out. And and even in the ARP, you know, we had a coalition of Democratic and Republican mayors in the state who are pushing for this. And by the way, one of the biggest beneficiaries of the ARP was the Republican legislature because, you know, months earlier they were, you know, crying poverty about how bad things were and how, you know, sales tax revenues had gone down and, and they didn't have enough money and there were going to have to be steep cuts all across the state in terms of services and this, that, and the other. Well, guess what? They just passed the biggest budget in Florida history. And guess what? They gave all of our first responders and teachers and, and nurses a thousand dollar bonus. Because of the ARP. Right. So, I mean, on the one hand, by the way, this got passed with like zero Republican support in Congress. But on the but on the other hand, you know, they're having lots of pats on the back and, you know, and ribbon cuttings 
and, and, and programs that are being funded only because of the ARP. So, you know, I mean, I, so I, and I, I think people see that. I mean, I think people, you know, from whether it's, look, this, these are direct payments, you know, so this is not like, you know, you know, so, some other crazy thing. And by the way, I don't, I don't think, I don't think Biden signed every check Trump did. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. Right. But, but, you know, so, so people, people are getting checks. Uh, people are you know receiving rental assistance. Our governments are, are receiving money to help so that people, you know, don't have to pay more taxes. Uh, you know, uh, billions of dollars that went into, into, um, into vaccination programs in Florida and elsewhere. And, and not just went into our state, but we're also designed to be equitable in, in, in terms of its rollout. So, and, and by the way, um, you know, the numbers bear it. I mean, the, the job creation, the growth in the economy, the growth in retail, and, and ultimately the growth in Biden's numbers. It's got very positive numbers everywhere. Yeah. I think people saw that, you know, empathy. You know, we spent four years with like not only zero empathy, neg negative empathy, because there was just no caring uh, for the for the struggles and the problems that you know people were were experiencing through no no fault of their own. I mean, it's it's not like you know, so you can't blame somebody for you know for 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 a virus that you know just came hit us all of a sudden, all of us, and 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 so. You know, again, small businesses that, that were now able to reopen, they, they were very trying times. And, and, you know, Biden and the Democrats were the ones that stepped up. Yeah, absolutely. Passed this bill. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I, you know, the most important thing is that it happened and that uh, those people that needed or needed are getting that help and that relief. And to your point, the businesses are opening back up, our economy is opening back up. So, but I have to just ask since about politics on this to your, to your earlier point, um, it is frustrating. I know for people who live in states where um, the Republicans are in charge governors and legislatures where they're, they're out taking credit for, for this help when they, when they weren't supporting it. I mean, what do you think of the politics of this is and how it bears out as we head into the midterms? I think they'll pay a price. I, I think they'll pay a price because, and, and the other thing that they're seeing is a, is a president who is really, really, really trying hard now, especially now to make it bipartisan. You know, it, it's like, come on guys. I mean, you know, Certainly, we can agree on something. And and by the way, you know, Trump ran on, you know, infrastructure was one of his big deals, right, when he ran. Okay, so here's an infrastructure bill. Oh, no, we're not going to support that. Why not? Well, because it, it's not ours. <laughs> I mean, you know, these are the American people. And and, and the, the dramatic impact on things like, for example, one of the, one of the things that, that has really, you know, I find in talking to people um, and even interviewing people for jobs with, with, with the Florida party is last year really made, last year was really a reflection point for, for a lot of people. And, you know, you know, the guy serving drinks at the local bar, you know, making 10 man or woman, you know, making 10 bucks an hour or 12 bucks an hour, all of a sudden, you know, sitting at home thinking like, is this what I want to do the rest of my life? You know, do I want to be, you know, 55 serving drinks, making $13 an hour? And so a lot of people, I think, are, you know, thinking about going back to school. Hmm. So if you, and doing something, you know, whatever it is, you know, rocket scientist or, you know, 
or a carpenter. I don't, you know, what, whatever, whatever you want to do, but it's something other than what you're doing now. The difficulty in uh, one of the biggest impediments, you know, childcare. Yes. You know, all of a sudden, yeah, you're home, but you're not paying for childcare. And and if if you, again, if you're going, if you're if you're the bartender, and you're paying for childcare. You know, you're, you may be spending more on childcare than you are, you know, making whatever salary you're making serving drinks. So, you know, it's like it's like a real reflection point in terms of what, you know, what should I do? And and um, and and again, these a lot of these programs are designed to to help you to help you get a college education for free, get support in terms of childcare, and and all those things to me, all those things are not. You know, Republicans say, "Oh, spending, spending, spending." To me, they're investments. Because if if you you know look, when I you know, and we'll talk about my personal story again. But you know, when I when I was in school, my first job was when I was 14 years old. It was a program called CETA, Comprehensive Employment Training Program, which was designed for kids that live below the poverty level. And and I was a janitor at a school, painting you know cleaning up after after school and painting desks and doing stuff like that. I was making a dollar ten an hour. I thought I was like set. I mean I could take my girlfriend to Burger King and splurge on a whopper, you know, and all that stuff. But my point is those programs don't exist anymore. But the government made a small investment in me and they don't always work. True, granted, but but I promise you I've paid back that dollar ten <laughs> A million fold, right? Yeah. And so, so to me, these are investments that you make in your people because if your people have the opportunity to fight for the American dream by going to school, by getting some sort of assistance in terms, you know, childcare or whatever, you know, whatever it is, those are those are investments that you're making in people so that they can improve themselves. Not because the, the Republican assumption sometimes is people are lazy, and if we give them money, they're all going to sit around and drink beer. And get fat at home and i have a totally different view because that's where i came from and that's where many of us came from in terms of the fact that government said okay we're going to invest in this little cuban kid and and we think we're going to get it back you don't always make the right investment but most of them are yeah most of them do pay off and that's how you become a better a better country that's right you know that's right Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that that investment is exactly right. That's what we're talking about is, is a transformational generational investment that hasn't been, that has been really underinvested for many, many, many decades, frankly, uh, to try to get this country uh, and the people in it to have that opportunity that, that they need to succeed. So let's talk about how you got here. Let's talk about your, about your story. You, you have such a compelling story, Manny. And um, you came here with your mom when I think you were six, is that right? From fleeing, right. fleeing Castro's Cuba, you know, tell us about how you got to America and how maybe how, how being an immigrant shaped your view of, of, of you've talked a little bit about it already, but to, you know, about, about the country, but also about public service. Yeah. So I was six. My, my dad, um, my dad, my, my family was okay in Cuba. I mean, they were not starving, but, but they were, you know, my dad, my dad had been, they, they had created a, when, when he was a young man, a, a boarding school. And the, one of the good things that that particular president did, and, and they, they recruited 200 of the 250 of the poorest kids in, in the, on the Island. He was one of them. Hmm. Uh, and then after from that, he got a job with the, um, 
with the electric company uh, of Cuba and, uh, you know, just basically, you know, spent the rest of his life there until Castro. When Castro seized power, a group of his colleagues went out on strike because he, he nationalized, you know, private business. And so they all got rounded up and thrown in jail. And that's where he was for a couple of years. All, every single one of the guys he went in with were executed. My mom had to, you know, visit him in jail uh, all the time. And what they would do is they were doing some, you know, summary executions and they would make, you know, the wives walk through the area where they were executing people up against the wall, mm. blood, you know, all, all over the ground, and they would make them walk through that. They would, you know, strip search them. They would look through whatever care package they were bringing and take whatever they wanted to take from it. So my dad was pretty adamant that, you know, you got to get our son out of here because this is only going to get worse. So get out while you can. My mom didn't want to leave because, you know, she's leaving her husband. Yeah, sure. He, you know, he, he just said, Look, I'll divorce you. <laughs> we'll worry about whether I can get out later or not, but but we got to get our son out, and, and that's the number one priority. And so that's how I ended up here. And when we came here, we moved in with my mom's brother, my uncle, who had been here already. And you know, it was eight eight of us in a you know two bedroom apartment in the area we have since referred to as Little Havana. You know, I was a typical immigrant kid. My, you know, I, I mean living in the streets, playing a lot of sports. That's a good thing. That's the thing that kept me alive. Mm. You know, my, my best friend in elementary school grew up to be one of the biggest cocaine dealers in American history. <laughs> a really I did bad not guy. know that. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was, he was my buddy. And, and so, you know, uh, part, part of that was that the um, reason why my, my uncle had taught in this school in, in Cuba that was a Jesuit uh, Catholic school. And, and so he said, you know, we got to try to put Manny in there because the, those guys will, you know, beat him in the head until he straightens out. And, uh, and so they did. I tried, I tried like crazy to flunk the entrance exam because, you know, by, by the way, they didn't have girls in the school. It was an all boys. Wow, school. Well, there you have it. No way. No way I'm going to that school. But, but somehow I, somehow I, I passed or they made it up. I'm not sure which one. And so that, that really, that really sort of straightened me out. Uh, you know, I kept playing sports and, and I'm, I'm very competitive. And so seeing all these other kids in the, in, in that school who some of their parents had actually brought money from the Island. And so they were already living in the suburbs, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but you know, I'm, I don't like to lose. And so, you know, that competition forced me or made, you know, like I want to study and work hard. So I did. I was first member, obviously, of the family to to, to graduate uh, graduate from college, and um, did all kinds of weird jobs. You know, I mean, I, I had a I had a job when I was at at, uh, at FIU, the university that, that, that it was cleaning a bingo parlor. And but I had to I had to I had an eight o'clock class in the morning, so I had to go like between four and seven to be able to clean clean up the place and then uh, tidy up and go to class. Wow. So just, but, but it didn't matter because I I had a goal in mind 
and uh, and the, the the thing that that in, in that in high school, actually probably middle school, the, the big transition for me was well number one I had just I mean I had gone through the experience of losing a country, right, and being uprooted and all of a sudden finding yourself somewhere yeah. else, and yeah. so that sort of creates a, a sense of you know as you get older like how the hell did that happen, you know <laughs> why am I here. And and so it it, it 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 creates a sense of that's not going to happen to me. Hmm. You know, I'm going to be involved in this thing so that I could keep that from happening. Because I, you know, part part I think part of the problem in, in the home country was that people just weren't political. People were just, you hmm. know, Batista and Castro and this guy and that guy. They can do whatever they want as long as they don't bother me. Well, you know, and 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 so you know, give give di dictators free reign. Yeah. yeah. Doesn't work. Doesn't yeah. work. So I think that had an impact. I also, you know, I also was growing up, you know, in, in the '60s and late '60s and '70s. I remember our, our garment teacher walking in the first day of class and saying something like, "So if you guys were driving down some, you know, dark road in Alabama, and a big old burly sheriff came up and you know, stopped you and arrested you or whatever, would you know what your rights are?" And I was like, "No, I mm. don't." I think I think I'd like to know. Yeah. And and then finally, I, the Jesuit education. The Jesuit education's mantra is, you know, well, it, it's men for others because it's a all boys school, but men and you know, men and women for others. So there's all there's there's instilled in you this sense of you got to get back. Mm. You're fortunate to be here, uh, but you've got to get back and help you know those that come after you. So the combination of all those things really led me to to have this. Commitment to public yeah, service. Yeah, I love it. I, I do need to say, since you didn't say it, I think your dad did get out of Cuba and got to America, yes, just so our listeners aren't going to their Google to make sure that. You know, um, so that was that was that was a, a good, yeah, good, yeah, a no, good no, story, please, good yeah. ending to that to that part of a of a, horrif of yeah. a horrifying story. And I guess you know you talked a little bit earlier about then you know you had said you would never run for office, but eventually you said, hey, if I'm going to make a difference, I'm going to do this. I mean, you did serve two years, as most people know, as a mayor of Miami, really and transformed that city, frankly, when you came in, you know, it was two, two terms. terms. Um, I said so, two, two years, sorry, two terms, um, <laughs> eight years. Um, they're going to Google, yeah, they'll they'll, Google they'll, that. They'll I, Google I was off on that one, right. <laughs> Yeah, but, you know, you really transformed it. You transformed it to, from somewhere that you said where you were on a plane, people are saying, I'm sorry for Miami. And, you know, Miami is a thriving metropolitan hub of this country these days and arts and culture. And and I know you spent a lot of time thinking about, um, you talked about the high rises, but you, uh, you know, got national recognition for your work around uh, sustainable, smart cities, walkable cities. So uh, when you look back at, you know, your time as mayor, you know, is there anything you're you're most proud of as um, the, what you're able to accomplish in those eight years? Well, it's the brand really literally you, you took a dysfunctional laughing stock and made it into one of the most well-known you know attractive brands in the world again that same person on the airplane that gave me condolences for living here would now be saying oh how cool oh you, oh miami oh wow that's great yeah by the way i have an office there I have a condo there. I have family there. I went there last week. You know, I mean, there's always like a, like a, like a real connection with, with the city and, and with people. And, and within that though, of course, you know, it's, it just doesn't happen, you know, particularly, you know, one of the things that I love 
stats that I love is, you know, 60% of our residents are foreign born. So, you know, when, when I hear the immigration debate, which by the way, I've been fighting since, you know, since I started doing all this stuff and it seems like I, it's like Groundhog Day, you know, I keep having the same fight, you know, 40 years later, yeah. you know, yeah. but I, but I tell people, look, this, this is America. You know, this is, this is the new face of America people. And by the way, we didn't, we're, we're not where we are because we're just like really smarter than anybody else. No, we went through hell in the eighties from an immigrant point of view. You know, we, we had an anti-bilingual ordinance, which was, you know, English only. And that, that was only, that was only a disguise for, we really don't yeah. like you. Yeah. You know, we were the riot capital of the country. We were the murder capital of the country, the drug capital of the country. We had growing pains. In fact, I'll tell you the a lot of what I did in, in those early years of my life were, were, were designed to build bridges in this community because of the internal strikes that we were having and the racial and, and, and ethnic issues that we, that we were facing because I felt an obligation and, and the ability because I grew up in a, you know, raised in a Cuban American household where I, you know, ate Cuban food and listened to Cuban Cuban music and blah, 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 and had all the cultural benefits of that. But I also turned on TV and watched, you know, uh, Bonanza or, you know, Father Knows Best or, you know, Leave it to Beaver or any of those, you know, shows back then and listened to the Beatles. And, and I was I was a normal, regular American kid. So I felt very, always felt very comfortable in either culture because I was very much a part of both cultures. And, and so that put me in a position where I felt I could be a bridge. And I spent many a year working in, in over a decade, working in organizations designed to build bridges in this community. And, and then in 2000, it was almost like a repeat of my experience in, in 1980. The, what really triggered me in the mail decision was seeing a picture of, uh, of a scene after Ilian Gonzalez, which as you know, I, I represented the family as a lawyer and, and seeing a picture or seeing some news clip or something where there's a sort of a very redneck looking guy with a Confederate flag standing on a street corner in Miami somewhere next to a black woman with, with a sign saying, Cubans go home. And it was like, so the symbol of hatred that is standing next to you is tolerable at this particular moment so that you can collectively come after me. There is something definitely wrong with yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And so, and so that, that was it. I mean, I, that, if, if you, if you can't unite people, if you can't bring people together, you can't achieve all the other things that we've been talking about for a city. And, and so, you know, like, like I said, I'm proud to say, yeah, we're not perfect, but it, it was a realization that we have tremendous potential because we have so much diversity that it's really our strength and, and we can, we can do this and, and, and we, and we have to do it. You know why? Because we, this is the new America. You know, I remember in the early part of my first term when mayors, colleagues from Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, places like that were coming to me and saying, hey, you know, we've got a lot of 
Latinos moving into our city. Give me some advice. What do I do? How can I welcome them, be accommodating, help, blah, blah, blah. So I kind of saw, you know, mayor see everything first, right? Because you're on the ground. So I started to see that demographic shift in places in the country that that didn't have it before. And, and so, you know, that's the point. The point is, look, the face of America is changing. And if you want to see it firsthand right now, go to Miami and see it. So I'm very proud of that. You know, I mean, it's like you said, I mean, the buildings are, you know, yeah, so what? But but what what what, what excites me is, you know, when I see street furniture, that's what mayors hmm. do, mm-hmm. you know, street furniture. Uh, when I see, you know, cycling and, and the growth of, of people on, on bicycles, when I see the growth and when I take my daughter to our performing arts center, uh, which before, you know, be, you know, in the, in the in the 1990s, we would have had to fly to New York to see a right, play right. or an opera or a ballet. Now we see it here. So, you know, the growth in, in, in the quality of life for everything that we did is what's created the Miami that, that it is today. That's wonderful. Congratulations. Thank you for that, too. I do want to say, I want to end one thing on your on your family. Um, I do love the, what I think I read, you were talking about your Jesuit education. You were the, and your sports and how that kept you alive. And I believe you scored the first touchdown for that, for your school. And I, and I yeah. know now that your son is the hurricane coach. <laughs> Miami, Miami Hurricanes. Hurricanes it's all about football. The so that is uh, quite a, a full circle story as well. I loved when I read that. <laughs> yeah. So, but but that's that was the good news because then, of course, when he came down, then he started getting all the info <laughs> in town, which was great for me. I mean, I loved it. Okay. Nobody's nobody's bothering me. I love with it. Share now. the love. <laughs> Share the love. Well, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. I think um, our listeners are going to love getting to know you. I feel like what you just talked about with Uniting Miami is, you know, what you're on a mission to do in Florida. And um, I wish you the best of luck and we'll be watching and, and uh, really appreciate you. Thanks. Thank Debbie. you. And, and thanks for what you do with New thank Deal. Thank you so much. I have a lot of respect for the organization and for all We really appreciate it. All right. Take care. Thank you. You too. Have you a great too. weekend. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Road Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.